I was not a good entrepreneur. I was not a good business owner. I hadn't prepared. I hadn't prepared for an emergency. There were no reserves. You know, they're, they're, they're supposed to be, I don't know, six to 12 months cash reserves and you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to, but when everything's good and money's coming in and everything's easy, just don't think of those things. But in the moment, all I could think about is how, not only I'm a failed entrepreneur, but this is proof that I'm not an entrepreneur. Over 10 years, Marina Baizanova built her first business into a solid seven-figure company. Then, in a single, brutal weekend, her revenue fell from seven figures to zero, thanks to COVID restrictions and hiring freezes at all of her clients. There's nothing like a crisis to test your mettle as an entrepreneur, but up until this point, in her entrepreneurial journey, Marina had felt like a one-hit wonder imposter. Her and her business partner realized that they had lost their love for the business, her staff had turned on her after cuts had to be made to keep the business afloat. And in general, Marina says that she struggles to ask for help. So her near-death business experience had compounded complexity added to it. In this episode, Marina and I discuss anxiety, tough conversations with teams, being an immigrant entrepreneur, a mother, and a CEO while pivoting towards success. My name is Nick Harrodambus, and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Okay, welcome back to another episode of It's Not Over. And with me today is someone with an equally complex name, Marina Bajanova. So Marina, welcome and thank you for joining me. How are you? Well, listen, I would have said five minutes ago that I was very excited. Now I'm slightly nervous. You mentioned in your introduction to me behind closed scenes that this was going to be deep, vulnerable, possibly painful. So I'm slightly nervous about that. Awesome. I'm excited. The, this is commonly becoming regarded as the therapy for entrepreneurs, this podcast. So I'm down. Let's let's do it. Okay, so let's jump right in and give us some context about like who you are and what business you're in right now and what business we're going to talk about. Of course. So I was born in the Soviet Union, grew up in post-Soviet Ukraine. Entrepreneurship was never on my radar whatsoever. It wasn't part of life when I was growing up. When my family moved to Canada, I was 16 years old, a lot of awkward years and experiences there. Became what I at the time called an accidental entrepreneur when I was 27 years old. My now eldest kid was 10 months old, started, co-founded a recruitment business, which is the one we'll be talking about today. I thought at the time that I wasn't really an entrepreneur. I felt like I'm an imposter. This shouldn't have happened. It wasn't my dream. I wasn't one of the kids mowing the lawns and distributing newspapers and setting up lemonade stands whatsoever. And then when COVID hit, so did my, my business. Uh, took quite a bit, a big hit. And I started a new business called Brand of a Leader, which is a personal branding agency. And it's my COVID business. Okay, so we are going to be talking about the recruitment business that you first started. There's a lot of stuff that you just just in the intro that is interesting to me. And I feel urged, and I've never actually asked this question on the podcast before. I have opinions about this, but I feel the urge to ask you, as a self-proclaimed accidental entrepreneur, lots of entrepreneurs believe that you're born that way. Like, what's your stand on being born an entrepreneur or being made an entrepreneur? You know, I've struggled with finding an answer to this question as well, because 
because I agree with you where we are often told that we are you know born an entrepreneur that there are and that that you know that from a very young age I didn't know that from a very young age it's quite possible that I was born with certain qualities that then made me a successful enough entrepreneur and made this part of you know who I became professionally but but I struggle with that I don't think necessarily in life when we're very young we know what and who we want to become I don't think it's the case for everyone and I think that expecting it to be puts a lot of pressure on us life is full of pivots which is what you talk about on your podcast right the the pivots of life and I think we figure stuff out as we go and putting that pressure I've been meant to be a certain thing is 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 too much it's unnecessary yeah I love that the life is full of pivots I mean I feel like my life would be very boring if I had a path from when I was 16 and just followed it straight to 38. So I'm, I'm glad you say that. Now I want to ask you about the accident of starting this company. You said you were an accidental entrepreneur. Tell me how that accident unfolded and why on earth you started a recruitment business of all the companies in the world you could start. Well, Nick, I was just a very quintessential immigrant in that I dreamt of a corporate career. I wanted to have an office in a skyrise corner office. My parents would come take pictures, send them back home, say Marina made it. That was the plan. And I fell into recruitment as a corporate career by complete chance and fluke. I actually had no idea that that's what people did as a vocation. I wanted to get a job in marketing. I wanted marketing. Marketing did not want me. I couldn't get a job in marketing. And so I ended up in recruitment. And five years into the job, I realized there were a lot of things that I loved about it. One of the things that I love is helping the underdog, helping people find their voice. Um, And I, I found that I got to do quite a bit of that in recruitment. I had my first kid and a former coworker approached me and said, we should start a business together. We should launch our own recruitment firm. We love what we do. We don't love necessarily how the industry operates and how our employer at that point for her, her former employer operates. We can do things better. She was somebody who always dreamt of entrepreneurship. I didn't. She had to be very convincing and you know really focus on how this would align with my core values and the change that I wanted to make. And uh, I took the plunge. As I mentioned earlier, my kid was 10 months old. It was not easy. Staying in corporate (laughs) would have been a bit simpler, but that's when my entrepreneurial journey started. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And and the part that I want to actually ask you about on that happy accident is it's a very Mediterranean thing too. Your parents want you to have a job that they didn't have and like the life that they never had. You get it. And my parents did everything in their power to prevent me from being an entrepreneur. They didn't want me to go down that route. I I was forced to do science for high school and almost failed because science gives you options. So how did you overcome that fear of, okay, I'm on a path at a corporate and it's going to be stable forever to screw it. I'm going to take this risk while I have a 10-month-old baby and I'm an immigrant in this new place. Like, how did you overcome that? What was going through your head? Uh, so first of all, on the topic of parents, I had zero support from my parents. So theoretically, yes, we want you to be happy and do what you think. But uh, Nick, they did not come to visit my office for years after I started the business. Wow. For years, they were just afraid afraid of seeing something and being disappointed. And I had a team. We were growing nationally. We opened a second office. Our office was beautiful. We had a fantastic team. And my parents just were blocking it out. They were pretending wow. it was not happening. So that was one. So uh, how... 
I took the plunge was really just following my core values. I really had to sit down and I was massively scared and I was not convinced that this was a good idea, but it felt so right in such an inexplicable way that I had to at least give it a chance. I gave myself six months. I said, uh, we launched in the month of November. I told myself if by June, so by the end of the month of May, it's not picking up, it's not working, then I'll go back to corporate. I gave myself six months. By then we were already hiring, we were growing, we moved into a new office. So things picked up quite, quite fast. That's amazing. Give me some context on time. What year did you start this business? Launched the business 12 years ago, 2010. Okay. I mean, interesting time having just come out of the great financial crash, 2008, not that many jobs in the recruitment space to be filling. Like, it made absolutely no logical no, sense, no sense because not only were people not hiring so much, we made a decision from the beginning to only focus on permanent positions and doing hiring for permanent roles, which people who were hiring were hiring temp contracts yeah. right, in order not to create budget dependency. Yeah, so in theory, it made no sense. But again, it, it just goes to show that when you're so aligned with your core values and when something feels just deeply, deeply right, somehow, somehow you make it work. It works out. Okay. So 2010, you start six months later, you're growing, you're expanding, you're hiring, and then shoot me forward towards this near death business experience that we're going to talk about. So business was going really well in that within four years, I think of operating, we broke seven figures in, in revenue, annual revenue, which was remarkable for a services business with both my business partner and myself kind of managing motherhood and the business and all those different things. So it was quite remarkable. It was going well. We expanded nationally. Had certain issues with the business and continuing to grow it because once you break through a certain threshold and there are new issues, new problems, so we're figuring it out. And then uh, 2020, beginning of 2020, I started thinking of one day launching a personal branding agency that was going to be my you know, I guess attempt at serial entrepreneurship, which made no sense to me because I was still, I was doing, giving a lot of talks, doing presentations and saying I'm accidental entrepreneur. I'm not really an entrepreneur. A lot of excuses of, oh, you know, I'm not really like, like you guys. And then saying, well, I'm going to launch this personal branding agent, applied for a master's degree to start doing research in that field. And beginning of 2020, I said to myself in three years, I'm going to launch a new business. And the first business is, is stable, it's growing, it's doing well. And then March of 2020, it all changed. As COVID hit, it really, Nick, it hit so many businesses, right? And so many verticals. Mine overnight went to zero dollars in revenue. From the seven figure business to zero. Zero. And we had not been at zero even when we started the business. Wow. We started because there were a couple of, you know, prospective clients that wanted to work together. So we had to hustle to create a contract and register the business. We had never been at zero, even when there was no business. And all of a sudden, absolutely every single project, everything we were working on. Hiring freezes went, went on pause. Everything. Okay. And so I'm going to layer on some more context here. So now it's been 10 years. You started in 2010. It's 10 years. You're in multiple cities. Like, give me some context on how big your team is. Can you tell me like how many people you were placing a month or how many clients you had? Because it feels like this business scaled quite dramatically and very efficiently 
and then just grinded to a halt. So I, I really do want to see the juxtaposition. Here. So we had our main office in Montreal, Canada, mm -hmm. and we opened a small office in Vancouver, in Canada as well. And we were recruiting, well, across across the country with a little bit of hiring in the US. We had a team of 12, total total of between 10 and 12, we would mm -hmm. go between the two, so really lean and really profitable. A good question of how many people we were finding jobs for on, an, on a monthly basis, probably an average of 10. So high profit margins, doing really well. We had expanded into also consulting businesses on company culture, conducting company culture assessments. We also expanded into doing doing employer branding campaigns as well. So there was not the natural progression into offering new things as well. So it was, um, yeah, it was just stable. Life felt like everything, like, what should I be doing next? You know, when everything is so good, you're like, this is good. What should I be doing next? And then life has other plans. Okay, so March 2020 kicks in. You go from placing people monthly, seven-figure annualized business to zero incoming revenue. And what exactly do you and your business partner do and say? And I mean, when I say that, I mean, literally, what was the phone call like with the two of you? What happened? Hey, folks. Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube. Then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, Back to the knowledge bombs. Before there was a phone call, there was the weekend when everything went to a haul. So there were no phone calls there because I, quite frankly, couldn't speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, I spent the weekend in bed crying and just really unable to speak. It was a complete feeling of overwhelm and so many different things. I felt, the thing is, there were also no phone calls. And yes, of course, then I spoke with my business partner and we came together to at least, you know, try to preserve what we could and realign things. And I'll share that. But mm. I had trouble talking to anybody else outside because I felt so ashamed. Even though this was COVID and this was a global pandemic, I felt that this was so dramatic for my business because I was not a good entrepreneur. I was not a good business owner. I hadn't prepared. Well, of course, nobody prepared for a global pandemic, but I hadn't prepared for an emergency. There were no reserves. You know, they're, they're, they're supposed to be, I don't know, six to 12 months cash reserves and you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. You're supposed to, but when everything's good and money's coming in and everything's easy, just don't think of those things. But in the moment, all I could think about is how not only I'm a failed entrepreneur, but this is proof that I'm not an entrepreneur. Why did I ever do this? Why did I get into this? Now I'm gonna, I'm failing my employees. I'm gonna lose my house. All I could do, Nick, was just run calculations through my mind and repeat that made no sense because they were in my mind. But it's like an OCD thing. You just run yeah. calculations, you figure out nothing's gonna work. And it was, it was a very dramatic moment. Every time you rerun that calculation, you're like, I am screwed. Oh, I am screwed. Oh, yeah, I really am screwed. And what, what I, I mean, the feeling comes up for me too. I think you mentioned briefly imposter syndrome earlier, but that then goes, oh, but that wasn't an imposter syndrome. That was true. It was true that I felt that way because now I don't have a business and now there isn't money. Oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And okay, so you threw yourself an entrepreneurial pity party. And then what did you do? <laughs> 
it continued that party yeah, for a while, sure. though I have to be honest with you. I'm it sure. was an ongoing theme for quite some time. How, um, how long? But I yeah, mean, so, that's a, it's a good point, though. I mean, how long did you feel these feelings of shame and pity and embarrassment? Because I felt them too. To an extent, uh, still. still. To an extent, still. Just on different levels, right? And I've pivoted and uh, I'm doing different things. But to an extent, still, because, you know, throughout that time, you know, the, the more intense time of the shutdowns and, you know, in Canada, it was just... I feel we're going to have another shutdown in the fall. Mm-hmm. It's just continuous shutdowns. But at that same time, we would read stories of entrepreneurs who were thriving, either because they were in a business that benefited from, from being in the in the pandemic, they were in the right vertical, or they had just been great entrepreneurs and they'd prepared and they built cash reserves. And we would see how um, they're saving their teams and they're you know doing all these great things. And I have to tell you, I felt genuinely happy for them, genuinely happy. And I would reach out to people and congratulate them because it gave me a hope that life will continue somehow because otherwise everything felt so dark. But at the same time, it just reassured, reaffirmed my belief that I wasn't like them. I wasn't this great entrepreneur. So a lot of feelings of shame that that persisted. But as soon as the week started, of course, I had to meet with my then business partner and we had to make decisions. What were we going to do with the team? Where could we cut costs and expenses? How would we make the reduced payroll? You still had to make it, right? It still had to come from somewhere. What would we do? So the first two days back at the office, it was just she and I, and we were just going through absolutely everything line by line, every single expense, everything on the balance sheet, just line by line by line by line, sharing a lot of tears and a lot of dramatic outbursts and a lot of lamenting and if only I had, if only you had. But those those two days were, were quite heavy and emotional. What's interesting to me is as someone who is clearly struggling to label herself as an entrepreneur and had no formal quote unquote business training, you're speaking about balance sheets very freely, cash flow movements, expenses. I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I've spoken to on this exact show who don't know what a balance sheet statement is, who've never understood their cash flow statements. So what I want to ask you is, how did you know these things? In your 10 years as an entrepreneur, did you just upskill yourself or did you go out of your way to learn things in a formal way? So I was very fortunate to have joined Entrepreneurs Organization, <gasps> EO, very early on in the business. So even before we qualified to be members of EO, because you have to have seven figures in revenue to be able mm-hmm. to qualify, they had launched an accelerator program in our city the year, I think we were maybe three years um, in business at the time. And a couple of clients of ours recommended that we join. We joined. And honestly, Nick, we joined because we wanted to be close to EO. We had no interest in any formal training and day-long learning experiences. We were saying this is just a waste of time. We don't have time for this. But at least we'll be close to EO. It turned out to be the most phenomenal thing that we did in our business. It was unbelievable learning. This is where we learned a lot of those things in a very formal, formalized way. And within a year, it doubled our revenue without an increase in headcount and were able to qualify for EO, which was quite remarkable. And then being in EO and being around other entrepreneurs who've consistently made me feel like they are gifted at this and I'm just pretending and making it up, but somehow I'm still around, so it's still working. Just being around them and having a lot of conversations and a lot of learning events um, has been really incredible as far as my, my growth as an entrepreneur, as a business owner. I feel like I start. I need to start getting EO to sponsor this podcast. The number of EOers I've had on here talking about how great EO is. Okay, if hey EO, if you're listening, you can feel free to contact me. Okay, so you have a two I'll day. I'll make sure to share the link. <laughs> yeah, share the link with everyone. So you have a two day sit down with your partner. You go through line items. You look at what you can cut. But we both know that you can't really cut your way to profitability. So what happens? 
So the most incredible thing happened. So first, we had to have a lot of very difficult conversation with our staff, putting them on temporary layoff and uh, just, you know, figuring out all those different things. But I then, and this sounds like just a very strange part of the story, but I then went on LinkedIn is what happened next. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. I love sharing. I love putting myself out there. And I wrote a post on LinkedIn, my most vulnerable post, maybe ever, maybe to date at that time. And in that post, I really shared how hard everything had become. I must have used the word tough in that one post about eight times. It was not one of my most eloquent ones. It was just, it's tough to be an entrepreneur, it's tough to be a parent, everything's tough. And so I shared that we were struggling quite a bit. And the most incredible thing happened after that, I got flooded with messages from people. And messages, you know, offering support and very kind, which which was great, but also offers to collaborate, to partner up. And I really did not expect that when I shared that post, because to me, this was a loser post. Like I was sharing that I'm a loser. Like, I I don't know why I'm sharing, but I'm putting it out there. I didn't think anybody would say, oh, I want to work with this loser. Let's partner up with with her. I didn't expect that, but that's what happened. And all of a sudden, we got a huge contract with a company, a local company here that's in the food space. So they were thriving that allowed us to take our team members and contract them out to them. So our team members would get paid and we would make a margin on top of that by contracting them out to to this company, which gave us a bit of a runway to, well, at the very least, we weren't making money, my my business partner and I, but we were at least paying the bills, which which was quite remarkable. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, what did you take away from that? Just writing that emotional, vulnerable, honest post, did it shift the way that you do marketing going forward? Not marketing per se, because I've been, um, it, it, it's part of now that I'm in the personal branding space, it's one of the stories I share with my audiences to inspire and convince them to put themselves out there. I think there's huge power in building a network that I had already built before, right? Had this been my first post, it would have been odd. But because I had consistently put myself out there and I had that visibility, I had a platform, me sharing vulnerably, you know, built on existing contacts, mm. existing relationships, even though those were not existing business relationships, those were people that were in my network already. So mm. it reaffirmed that and it's something that I, I share with people now. What it did shift in me, however, Nick, and one of my big takeaways, one I still struggle with, but it reminds me of it. I have a very, very hard time asking for help. I have a very easy time, you know, offering help or if somebody asks me for help, I'll help out. I really struggle. I Again, it goes to my imposter syndrome or whatever psychological complexes I have. Well, I feel people will think that I'm not good enough at what I do. I'm, I, I don't have it all together. I have a very hard time asking for help. And even though here I didn't directly putting myself out there, gave people an opportunity. Well, I'm saying to help, but nobody gave me a handout, right? I mean, they helped themselves too because they needed increased hiring for their team. But nonetheless, one of my takeaways and something that I'm still struggling with and still working on is putting myself out there, not just as somebody who is successful, everything's great, everything's going amazing, but actually showing when something is not going great and particularly asking for help. Yeah, I mean, welcome to my show. (laughs) 
that's exactly why I'm sitting and talking to people like you who quote unquote have it all together because you don't all the time. It's a shit show for most of the time. And sometimes things come together and then you ride on that wave for another few months until the shit show goes away again. So now speaking of that shit show nature of the world, tell me about the first conversation you had with your team about all of this. You and your partner have now decided what you're going to do. You publish that post very publicly and visibly. Your team can see it. What do you say to them and how do they respond? So we spoke to the team before before the post. We had a team Zoom chat and then one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, I don't talk about this much, but they did not go well at all, really at all, Nick. It's still a huge pain point. I think one I have not yet fully worked through, but they did not go well, which again, triggered this thought of I had done something not right before for the team to take this so poorly now because again on social media I'm seeing a lot of people saying how they're supporting their companies and employers and how they understand that it's really hard but I felt that we got no understanding from the team and I felt that the the feedback and just the emotion and reaction was very much as though it wasn't the global pandemic that happened but as though you know, I was doing something to each team member myself. It was very much like, how could you do this to me? So when we had this conversation of, I'm going, we're going, you're going to have to go on temporary layoff, as we call it in Canada, the, the reaction was, I never thought you would do this to me. And my reaction was, I never thought I would do this to anyone either, or yeah. this would be happening. But then you're the leader, the business leader, so you can't really talk about how hard it is for you or how everything's so unknown. And then continuous conversations were, well, but so what, when, when is this gonna be over? I didn't have that answer. So even when we brought people back, part of the team, not the whole team, to then be contracted out to a client, even throughout that time, I felt that there was quite a high degree of just contempt and mm. yeah, just, just this, 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 this emotion. I, I felt, I already felt guilty and here I was feeling mm. even more guilty as though I personally did wrong by those people. Although I did not see other options of what I could do differently in the moment, again, in retrospect and now in the new business, understanding the importance of having cash reserves and planning for something going wrong, replanning those things. But with, with that business, I hadn't, and I felt a lot of a lot of guilt as a result. And looking back on that initial conversation, do you think that there's something that you could have done in that conversation to help the team respond differently? With that said, I'm completely okay with the fact that some people just are selfish. Some people just only put themselves at the center of the world. They're egocentric and they see things happen to them, not them happening with other things. So, I mean, there's a bit of that, but in hindsight, do you think that you could have done anything differently in that first conversation? Not in the conversation itself. And I don't believe that they were coming from a place of selfishness. I think okay. what I had done very wrong is create a culture that was too focused on being friendship-based. You know this whole thing when like, oh, we're family, we're all family members. Well, if I go and I tell my mother that she's on temporary layoff and you know, things are changing for her all of a sudden, it's not gonna go so well, right? So we created that environment and we were a lot more friends and you know makeshift family members than we were its colleagues mm. and you know bosses and and employees and i think that's what contributed to it as well that was one of my big learnings and i never want to repeat that because when you are 
telling a friend and we weren't coming to a decision together because at the end of the day it's the right the two business owners that figure out what to do next but i'm communicating to them what's going to happen to them whereas they see this as this is a friendship you know we were family how can you do this to me so again i don't think at all that they were coming from the place of selfishness or not seeing a bigger picture i think it's the environment that we had created that served us for many years then didn't and then really didn't in times of crisis Great observation and, I mean, prompts an immediate response to how have you changed the way you build a culture in this new business? I mean, I'm sure you don't use the words, we're a family anymore. <laughs> I have a little bit of PTSD <laughs> when I see somebody <laughs> on social media, like, we're a family or we hire for fit, like twitch a little bit. I have yeah. to hold myself back from responding to it and be like, no, yeah. uh, let me tell you why that's a mistake. So how we do things now, I have, I have a different business partner now and how we do things differently in this business. Well, quite a few. Number one, and I, I do believe though that this is business strategy, that this is not PTSD driven, but I have no intention of ever having having any employees ever again. Instead, <laughs> we are building a culture though, and we are building an amazing team, but it's a team of contractors, freelancers, collaborators, interns. So we have big dreams of scaling. We have clients internationally. We have a team now that's building out to be a global team, but those are not employees on payroll. Maybe it's PTSD not of having employees, but of having payroll and then figuring out how to make that payroll. So number one. Mm. Number two, another realization I had, Nick, so I can tell you now, I am an entrepreneur and I'm a pretty good one, okay? So I've gotten over that imposter syndrome. However, what I'm really not good at is I'm not a good manager. And I really believe that nobody should be managed by me. Now, I am a great, I am a great leader. I do believe that I can inspire people. I can rally people together behind a vision. I can be, you know, very motivating. But as far as managing people, it's not my forte. So one of the things also that we did in the new business, in addition to building cash reserves, <laughs> which is one of the mm -hmm. things we're doing, but we really split our areas of focus with my business partner and myself. So he is the one that's focused on building the culture. He's the one that's focused on, you know, managing the work of, of the team, of our contractors and everybody there. And we're, we're keeping me away from that. I'm going to drag us back to the recruitment company and the LinkedIn post gets you people, companies who can use your staff. So you try and find places for all your teams to go. But I imagine now with no cash reserves, no income, you don't have any money to pay yourself or your business partner. So once you've got your team situated, what do you then do as Marina, the entrepreneur with a business that's got expenses in it? So first of all, cutting expenses. So we had to shut down our beautiful office and dull all of our beautiful furniture and our equipment and all those things. So that was quite an experience doing that also, wiping it all out. So How long did it take you to of, do that? Oh, we were acting very quick because we had no time to, to lose. So it was intense negotiation that my business partner entered into with the landlord. So within maximum two months, it was oh, wow. done. And then I was in charge of selling furniture and coordinating with people coming and picking it up and you know all <laughs> those different things. So within a couple of months, it was really, really 
fast. So first of all, we really we were renegotiating any software licenses, anything, and it's just it's so so humbling to do that. It is so humbling. Applying for a government loan, a couple of loans, so that sustained for expenses as well. Applying for the government of Canada was helping pay salaries, so covered you know a portion of our salaries as owners mm. because we we had been on on payroll. So just tapping into all those different programs and all those different things that helped us sustain and survive for a few months until some of the former clients started coming back and saying, okay, we're ready to hire somebody now. Can you help us? So then once those clients come back, do you start slowly pulling your team back in? And I asked that question specifically in relation to their unhappiness with being asked to leave in the first place. How did you re-establish a culture there at all? So two of our people stayed on board and yeah. those two people were the ones that stayed with us almost until the end of that roller coaster experience. And so they were handling those requests because there weren't that many. Mm. We did not need or could we have work for the full team at that point point? Okay. and slowly people on the team started finding other jobs so slowly they started also resigning and in any case it was you know the 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 team was sh- shrinking even from the temporary layoff so we had two people that continued to stay on board and help with those requests until there was one until it was just my business partner and myself and then and then came a very difficult decision and a lot of conversations as well because we knew that eventually the recruitment business the industry would bounce back right mm. and we see now that it's bounced back tremendously right and we're seeing that now there's huge demand and with the great resignation in north america is becoming really challenging to hire employer branding is becoming something that a lot of companies are interested in as well recreating their culture and now with hybrid workplaces so there's mm. a lot of work to do in this field What happened, however, when everything came to a pause and then survival and then kind of survival, barely survival, like kind of like not even breaking even on our bills, but whatever. Mm -hmm. um, Both my business partner and I realized that we weren't passionate about the business anymore. It was going to take a lot of passion and excitement to rebuild. And we realized that neither one of us had that interest anymore. You know, that business that I'd mentioned to you, I was planning to launch three years later, January 2020. I said, in 2023, this is when I'm going to launch the business. I launched it then. I launched it during the pandemic. It accelerated things for me. And so I had to go through a huge identity reinvention because I had been in this recruitment space for so, so many years. I was also an owner of a seven-figure business with an office and staff for so many years. And so I had to go through this whole reset saying, yes, the road to rebuilding will be much shorter if I go to rebuilding that business that had existed, has reputation, has a huge following, is very well known at this point. The road will be shorter, but it won't be as happiness-inducing. I'm going to take a longer road and start building something very different. So we're, we're winding down the original business, something I would have never thought would be possible a couple of years ago. We thought at the very least we would exit it, you know, sell it for a lot of money. But we're now winding it down and going in a completely different direction. That's really interesting because it does take a lot of bravery to walk away from something. One of my nickisms, my values that I live by is sometimes you gotta burn it all down. Like sometimes you just have to burn it down. That's the only way forward is to burn everything down and start again. And it feels like you're going through that. So I want to 
focus on a couple of things here. The first is this imposter syndrome. A lot of my guests have spoken about this. In fact, I'd say almost every single one, but none of them have verbalized to me that they've kind of overcome this feeling. And I'm glad you mentioned that you now do identify as an entrepreneur. And what I want to ask you is, how did you overcome that? How did you rebrand yourself and your brain to go, fuck it, now I am an entrepreneur? Starting a second business and seeing it grow. Okay. And just starting it with a different business partner. Because in the first business, you know, I credited my entrepreneurial journey, deservingly so, to my then business partner. She's the one that convinced me to do it. She was the one that envisioned having a business. So I credit it all very much to her. And I, I figured I would have never done it otherwise. Now, starting a second business and all of a sudden realizing how much I do know, how much I learned from that first experience, opening up to other entrepreneurs and honestly saying, you know, no, we didn't have a shareholders agreement. No, we were 50-50. No, we did not have <laughs> cash reserves. No, and having so people being like, oh yeah, that was me in my first business. And you go, okay, it's not that you are not a good entrepreneur. It's that you're learning and this is your first go. Yeah. So now being able to be building a business, seeing it grow as fast as it is and having so much self-awareness and knowing a lot of stuff has made me realize that it's just, just part of the journey. But the thing is different people start their journey in different places and mm. some people are more naturally equipped perhaps for entrepreneurship so they learn those things faster and sooner when they're told those things they they take them on board and they implement them I heard all those things Nick I heard about you know not overstepping with your company culture and not creating this overly buddy buddy feel I heard about the reserves you need to have I heard I heard I heard I heard but by the time it you know you talk about burning it all to start anew I didn't want to burn at all. I, it all burned for me. <laughs> I didn't want to. And in the yeah. meantime, you know, even as I was starting my new business, because a lot of people said, okay, but it propelled you to do what you want to do. And you're so happy now in your new business and you're so passionate about it. Yes, but I still would have wanted to do all that I'm doing now while I'm having my very comfortable paycheck and dividends and everything else. And also this feeling of, oh, I have a bigger business as I'm building a new one. The story mm. is different. It's less inspiring and exciting until I bring this new business where I want it to be. So yes, everything happens for a reason. Could it have perhaps happened simultaneously? <laughs> so I could Made still it a little have bit that. easier for you. <laughs> yeah. Just a bit. Just yeah, a bit. easy was not part of the part of the game in the last two years. No, I mean easy is not a frame of reference in entrepreneurship generally. I suppose if it was easy, everyone would do it. So, tell me about the mental health experience you've had, not just in the last two or three years, but as a newly minted entrepreneur leaving a corporate job with a child more than one child now I, I think you said you've got a future yep. now and then growing this business and scaling it like couldn't have been easy on your mental health because so much of your life is new for the last decade nothing is familiar definitely quite a trip and a lot of in on that trip a lot of guilt trips <laughs> as part of the equation and it's really interesting when you're juggling so many different things and everything's new you know being a mother is new being a business owner is new like all the different things are new and then you feel that you're not quite good at anything that sucks you know when you feel when you forget for the i don't know how many times you forget that it's i don't know 
Irish day and you needed to bring a green shirt for your kid and you didn't because somebody quit the day before and that's all you can think about and then you show up at the school and your kid goes, why is everybody wearing green? And you go, yes. And then you run into Walmart and now you're late for the meeting at work and you're just like dropping balls everywhere. It definitely takes, you know, it takes quite a toll and a lot of, you know, conversations with yourself trying to figure out, okay, what am I really good at, at though? Because, you know, yeah, why do I hate myself so much? <laughs> right? Like what some, something's not great. So a lot of those conversations and of course also, you know, being a, a female business owner and you, you, you face quite a bit as well. You know how many times I've heard from people when I would say that I'm going on yet another business trip. Oh, who's staying with the kids? Oh, the kids are just on the streets for a couple of days. You <laughs> They're know, fending obviously. for themselves. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they'll be good, you know, they're, they're three and nine, they're good. That's wild. It just, those those questions that make mm. no sense, right? Just a lot of those things where you, you just constantly question yourself. So that's, that, that has always been, been a trip. And then during the pandemic, I developed really deep and severe anxiety that I shy away from talking about because, again, it feels... It's so funny. You know, when other people talk about things, you feel it's so amazing and admirable. Like mm. when other people talk, let's say, about their business crashes and then coming out of it, I'm like, that's amazing. Yeah. But I don't want to talk about mine because I'm a loser. Or if somebody talks, let's say, about their anxiety or mental health issues, I'm like, that's amazing. Wow. Thank you for talking about this. When I talk about it, I'm like, no, because then I'm a loser. So mm. it's hard, you know, to to talk about those things when it's you. But it's quite quite a bit of anxiety that developed as a result yeah, I mean, as well. I can tell you that it, it was massive for me. I had huge, I still have massive anxiety. My, my therapist actually even liked to point out that I created an addiction for my anxiety um, because there are physiological responses to your anxiety, increased dopamine, increased endorphins. You have all these things that make you focus up. So when I didn't have anything to be anxious about, I would create anxiety so that my body would respond to the anxiety and focus me. So I had to slowly over years work through that anxiety and stress. I mean, my stress is the reason I'm bald. Uh, those, those very loyal listeners will know, and I'll repeat them for you so that you can feel it easier. Stress and anxiety have caused me to have insomnia, have caused me to have a stomach ulcer that put me in hospital. I've had kidney stones twice. I've lost all my hair. I can't tell you that whenever I feel anxious, it sits in the bottom of my chest, just below my chest cavity. I can feel it emerging, and I have to go and take 20 minutes to meditate or whatever to calm down. So I completely understand how the severe anxiety just evolved out of nowhere because one day you had a seven-figure business with 12 people. The next day you had nothing. And then immediately everything about you goes, wait, it was all fake. It was all fake. Of course it was all fake. That's the imposter syndrome. Oh, they just scratched below the surface. And then they did. And then they saw it was all fake. So I get the anxiety. And I am going to ask you, though, how did you slowly bring yourself out of that anxiety? I mean, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis to help you? I still struggle with it quite a bit. And first of all, thank okay. you for sharing. It's really, really vulnerable of you and I appreciate it. I feel it here. I feel anxiety here when I have oh. it. And it particularly peaks when I'm in public speaking settings, which sucks because I'm a public a speaker, speaker now. <laughs> so bad, bad timing. I'm like, just <laughs> go away because I really want to be here and I want to speak and now this is not letting me. So look, a lot of things and I'm still, I'm still working on it. And a few things that I started doing recently that I'm seeing are helping quite a bit is so developed with anxiety, a lot of OCD, a lot of dependence on just social media and scrolling and all those things. War started in Ukraine, which is my, you know, my, my home yeah. country. That um, exacerbated quite 
quite a bit. So what I started doing recently, again, thanks to EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, another shout out right there, but I started implementing new routines. So the gratitude routines and the journaling, and I've tried meditating and it hasn't quite clicked with me yet. Although I worked with an amazing coach during the pandemic um, who created meditations of my vision of my future mm. and my future self. And so that seemed a little bit more, I guess, pragmatic and connected with that logical side of my brain. So that, that helped quite a bit. And I'm just learning to be a lot more hyper aware of what drains my energy and what gives me energy to make sure that those are the tasks that I either keep or eliminate from my quote unquote job description. Mm. And I have to catch myself throughout the day to make sure that I never, because I've noticed that anxiety peaks when I'm tired. So I have to constantly catch my levels of fatigue and, mm. uh, you know, and scale back and work through them. But it's, it's tiring to work yeah. on not being tired. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I mean, and thank you for sharing. Anxiety. Yeah, thank you for sharing. That's so important. But it is, it's such, that last statement is such an important one that I've said this week, that doing the self-work is exhausting. It is exhausting working on yourself. Like, because it never ends. That's the problem with working on yourself. It's not like, oh, I'm profitable now. No, you're, you're never profitable in and of yourself. Okay, so final question. What have you learned from this first business of yours that you're taking forward into your second business? So many things. So number one, two, oh my God, so many things. A cash reserves already mentioned like a hundred times. That was one of my big PTSD moments. I learned a lot about myself, definitely. What I'm bringing into the, business, into the new business is my hyper awareness of what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, where I bring value, where I don't bring value, and this obsessive commitment to crafting out, again, my proverbial job description around things where I bring value, impact, and things that bring me joy. I don't believe that to start a business and be successful, you have to grind through things, through doing things that you hate. I think you need to learn all those different things. I think it's important. I don't think that you can outsource knowing about all those different things in your business. You have to know enough. But I do not believe that running a successful business equals just grinding through hating the things that you're doing. The whole reason we're doing this, we embark on those journeys that are so unpredictable and up and down and we pivot so many times, is for the sense of freedom to an extent, but also being able to do things as we want them to be, right? And then I've seen so many entrepreneurs and me in my previous entrepreneurial life as well doing the exact opposite. So then we become employees in businesses that we don't even love that much. So we end up more miserable than people who are employed, but in companies they love. And so we mm -hmm. become, you know, we start struggling, struggling with that. So one of my biggest learnings is to do what brings me joy and when, where I bring most value and have other people do things that are within their zones of genius and not mine. Amazing. What valuable insights and lessons. And I can't thank you enough for your time. So before you go, please tell people where they can follow you online, where they can get in touch with you and where they can buy from you if you have something to sell. So the name of my new business is Brand of a Leader. Brand of a Leader. I was able to get it as a domain name. How cool is that? It was the first business name I came up with. And then when I saw that the domain was available, I'm like, this is universe is smiling upon me. So brandofaleader.com, there's a possibility of booking a call with me there. I am extremely active on LinkedIn, as already mentioned, fairly vulnerable as well. To find me on LinkedIn, you have to be able to type up my name but you'll share that as well. The good thing is that I am, with my unpronounceable last name, the only Marina Bajanova with the spelling on the internet. So if you Google me, you'll find me, it will be me. 
What a dream. Marina, again, thank you for having the time to give to me. And I'm so glad to say that for you and your journey as an entrepreneur, it's not over. It's not over.